Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show here on the WZWA Network. I am your host, as per usual, the host with the most on the West Coast, California in Fury. And I'm very excited to be with you all here tonight. Uh, my co-host Jack Wallace is having some internet issues, so he can't join us, but that's okay. It's fine, because I am here with Asian royalty. He is, without a doubt, one of my favorite heels from the Attitude Era, he is somebody that I did not think that I would have the chance to speak to, but thanks to a friend of mine called Joe E. Legend, I was able to make contact with him. And it's my honor and my privilege right now to introduce the one and the only Tiger Ali Singh. Tiger, how are you going? Very nice. Thank you so, so very much, brother, uh, for welcoming on to your wonderful program. You come um, highly referenced by our mutual friend, Joe. And uh, he, he goes back way, way back to our uh, uh, Sully, Sully's gym wrestling training with Ron Hutchison and Sweet Daddy Siki. Right. Yes. I've heard a lot about Ron Hutchison. Um, yes. And uh, usually, Tiger, when we start the show, we usually ask how you became a wrestling fan. But this is a little bit different for you because you were born into a family where your father was already a, a famous professional wrestler so i guess you were here by force to become a wrestling fan as a young boy but uh what were your memories when you first started watching wrestling as a, as a young man well interesting enough and i shared this with when i went uh to see vince mcmahon and, and uh our dearly departed pat patterson i was i never grew up watching wwf i never grew up watching over here maple leaf wrestling in toronto I was drawn just to the Japanese wrestling because my dad was wrestling there. So at those days, um, it used to come on beta tapes. So I used to do the beta and then I, I, I uh, you know, copied it over to VHS and I did all my mixing and all of that, you know, Tiger Jeet Singh's greatest hits. And I was really drawn to the allure of the respect and the athleticism and the strong style of Japan. I wasn't really drawn to the theatrics um, it was just a no nonsense, you know, kind of, you know, uh, tough man sort of sport. And I was a big fan, obviously of my dad's and, uh, I can ring off Japanese wrestling stars, just like, I guess, kids born over here can rest off, uh, ring off the American stars, like, you know, uh, Antonio Noki, Saga Gucci, strong Kobayashi, Muta, uh, the, the, it goes on and on and on. So I was a big, big fan of New Japan Pro Wrestling, obviously, and, uh, and my father. So that's, uh, I, I had never had any aspirations to become a wrestler, but I was really a big fan of my dad. Right. Um, so when was it about, you know, as you're growing up, when you're starting to think to yourself, maybe I can do this too, maybe this is, this is my calling as well. Um, what made you decide to start training? Uh, well, I had always been doing training that was, you know, myself and my two younger brothers, uh, we were always into athletics. Um, there wasn't a sport that, you know, any one of us didn't try. So you always had to be in peak physical condition. And uh, so I'd always train. My dad would teach us the sit-ups and the push-ups, I guess, you know, since I can remember walking. And, uh, and that's just part of our lifestyle. Uh, that's part of the lifestyle of my children now. And uh, so I had always had aspirations in soccer, which would be European football or basketball. And 
once again, uh, no, no interest whatsoever to become a wrestler. And I think it was my very first trip to Japan. I think I was 18 or 19 years old. And I witnessed my father. I think it was the first match that I witnessed of my father in Japan. I think it was Antonio Noki's Memorial Series. Um, I, you know, I'm dating myself, I think in 91 or 92 or something like that. And it was in Yokohama Stadium. I remember that. And it was a dream match. So what they do is um, they put it out to the spectators. And the spectators' unanimous choice was to see the greatest, this is in their opinion, the greatest rivalry in the Japanese wrestling history, uh, which was Antonio Noki versus Tiger Jeet Singh. And they wanted to see them as a tag team. So I got, I got the best of both worlds. I got to see my Japanese hero and my, my father, my hero, see as the tag team. So they went up against uh, Animal Hamaguchi and the big Van Vader, you know, God rest his soul, dealer departed Vader. And uh, it was an unbelievable sight. Uh, I remember, you know, even I'm getting goosebumps just thinking of it now. I was sitting there front row with all the other legends. They had Johnny Valentine there. They had uh, Johnny Powers, Andre the Giant. I was a big fan of Stan Hansen. He was there, Billy Robinson. So they had brought all of these uh, stars to be guests ringside to witness uh, this dream match. And I was just a skinny, <laughs> I think it was like 150 pounds, 160 pound, 18 year old kid. And I witnessed this match. So at my dad's entrance, uh, they played the national anthem of India. And the, everyone stood up and they had the Indian flag and you had, I don't know how many tens of thousands of Japanese people chanting, sing, 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 sing. Whenever he would, you know, get a hot tag or whenever they were waiting for a Noki to tag him in or tag him out. And it blew my mind, man. It blew my mind. I was just like, that's not my dad. You know, like he, he, he was like two different worlds when he was home. There was none of this. Like he didn't drink his own Kool-Aid. Uh, that was at the office. And when he came home, he was dad, you know, like we would rough it up. We do you know, wrestling. He would come like any other parent, watch us play soccer on the sidelines. Well, not like any other parent. The parents would be in the lawn chairs and drinking their Java. My dad would be on the other side and he would be running up and down while we're running and doing Hindu squats or push-ups. So I remember him, you know, being so you know, uh, so full of life. And, uh, but that blew my mind. I was like, right then and there, I said, you know, he's always been my hero, you know, and, uh, you know, and a lot of people grow up admiring, you know, and you guys would have superstars in New Zealand and Australia, like rugby over here. The big thing was ice hockey, which was Wayne Gretzky and basketball at the time was Michael Jordan, but always to me, it was my father, you know, Tiger Jeet Singh. So just imagine it was like, you know, at 18 years old, I go, it would be a tragedy if this man's legacy was not continued on for future generations to learn of. Like he was a pioneer for the South Asian community in Canada, right? Like he was, he was uh, not only South Asian, he, he was uh, the first visible minority to be on mainstream television in the late 60s. He was the first South Asian, especially Punjabi, wearing a turban. You know how it was. He wrestled in New Zealand and Auckland and all that. So there was lots of racism, lots of anger 
because you look different, right? So he, he, he was the first and he was the pride, even to this day, the pride of the South Asian community. So, um, you know, all that history, I, I just thought it, it needed to be preserved. And uh, so I put all my uh, aspirations aside. I said, this is the most important thing. And I wanted to carry under his name. Like I wanted his name to be remembered. It didn't matter about me. I just wanted, you know, Tiger, there was a Tiger, you know. And uh, so that's how I got into it. Right. Um, so you start training. And uh, one thing that I really was interested in asking you about was teaming with your father in 1992, uh, I believe in FMW. Um, that must have been just such a wonderful experience to, to spend all that time with your dad and, uh, and, and, and work with him. And man, I just want to hear about that. That must have been so much fun. Well, uh, that's a great, it, you, you, you hit it right there. You know, it was lots of fun prior to that, you know, I didn't really have a really close relation with my dad because, you know, he was this menacing figure and whenever he would come back, you know, we would be mind our P's and Q's because we were scared. Uh, my, my connection to this day has always been with my mother. She is like the, my best friend on the planet. Like I, there is no secrets that I hold from her, like everything. Uh, she, I think she knows me more than my wife, to be honest with you, <laughs> from, the, from the childhood perspective, you know, but uh, you're right. The bonding with my dad as a father and son, as a peer, started when I started training for wrestling. And uh, it was never pushed on me. It was never pushed on me. He, he never, ever had any inclination of me being a wrestler. Neither did my mother. But when we started traveling, uh, we became really like we're inseparable now. You know, we're, we're best friends. We have breakfast every morning with each other before, you know, the day goes nuts. I see him at night. You know, I always say good night. I see him. Uh, we have a very large estate that we live in. So we're, uh, you know, a joint family. So my parents, they live with my mom, my wife and my three children. It's, it's uh, large enough uh, that we have all our own wings and all of that. But I'll make sure before uh, I put my head on my pillow that I'll go and pay my respects to my parents because they've sacrificed their whole life to give us what we have today. And uh, so on the tour, we just gelled, man, you know, just uh, good times, good jokes. I think that's when he started treating me more like as an adult. He was never, he never had any vices, you know, it was not like uh, he was all of a sudden, oh shit, my kid's with me, he's going to cramp my style. He's never done smoking, you know, he's never had affairs, there was never girls or anything like that. He was uh, an unbelievable true gentleman, right? Because uh, you can imagine if you live that kind of life and your kid is coming, um, and you can only hide it for so long because then all of a sudden society, right? Like I would find out from his friends and all of that, but that was something else I really admired, you know, for being someone that was at that stature. Um, he never gave into the vices. And uh, so I was, uh, I, was, uh, I was really proud of that. And then leading up to that match that you're talking about in FMW, I still remembered it was in Corrigan Hall. I believe we were fighting uh, Sabu, and I, I believe, you know, the, the great Sabu. And I believe there was another guy, uh, like a copycat sort of butcher or something like that. A really nice guy too. I know we booked him on several tours after that. Just unbelievable. But I was a greenhorn, man. I was so excited. And, 
you know, Corrigan Hall is like Madison Square Garden in New York. That is the shrine. You know, that is like all the epic matches happen in Corrigan Hall in Tokyo. So I was, uh, I don't I, I was so green and I was like, you know, just like a popcorn in a popcorn machine. The kernels were pop, 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 pop all over. I was going all over. I was so green. I didn't know what I was doing. And I'm a fan of my dad and my dad is there too. So I was like, <laughs> it was uh, really, really exciting as a cherished moment and uh, lots of, lots of fun, lots of fun with my dad. Excellent. Excellent. I believe that was on the 20th of November, 1992 and you faced Sabu and a guy by the name of Kareem Sudan. That's right. That yeah, it was something Sudan. Yeah. And uh, I think he's from Chicago or something like that. Not from Sudan. Right. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah. And I was a big fan of Sabu. Unbelievable. You know, a legend, Sabu, you know, all the stuff he was doing. And Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was in awe. I was just a kid, man. I was just a kid and just, in, you know, just enjoying the moment. Right. Um, so I, I did a bit of research, obviously, uh, before this interview and, and I'd learned a few things about how uh, it went from where you were working in Japan with your father, uh, spending most of your early career over there. Um, but there is a time period where you end up signed by the WWF. Um, from what I gather, you, you were signed for a specific reason to help with a, a TV deal or something like that. Was is, is that, am I getting that correct? Yeah, so the real reason was um, uh, to sign, to renew their TV contract with Star TV, uh, Rupert Murdoch. So back in the day, okay. there wasn't as many channels. So Sky Sports was their carrier in Europe. Star Sports was their carrier, up, carrier in Asia. And their, one of their largest, if not the largest viewership was obviously India. You know, you have 1.3 billion people. So they weren't really looking to me to be coming in like a blue chipper or anything like that. You know, it was more like, you know, the ethnic part of it, right? Because that was kind of the, the, that was kind of their marching orders that we need somebody to represent, you know, like how wrestling is. Everyone's got to, you, you have a wrestler to represent a demographic. Yeah. So at that time, they didn't have a, a wrestler to represent that demographic. So that was kind of the ultimatum that um, the, the TV people told them. And at that time, there weren't that many carriers. So if they never renew the contract with them, unlike today where you can, you know, go ping pong back and forth, course, yeah. they, they would have been marginalized more as a regional, like uh, they, they would not have renewed their contract with them. And at that time, WCW, I'm not sure about WCW as much. I know that they were, you know, just hammering. They were trying to hammer. There was a war, right? They were trying to defeat Vince McMahon. And also Antonio Noki knew Japan. He was the one that actually brought it to our attention. He flew in here with his entourage and he goes, listen, this has been told to me that we can pick up this deal and let's start a new company in India. Like, you know, he talked to my dad about, you know, let's, uh, you know, Anoki and Tiger Jeet Singh, let's build it and then let's groom and bring Junior along, right? To try to carry it in, into the future. So there was all those plans. He flew here and uh, we never used that as a negotiating tool whatsoever. Um, my dad is very honorable, very respectful. And that's the way we were raised by my mother. And, uh, but you're right. That's, 
that's how it happened. And it was a really big of whirlwind. Um, so first Anoki came, just called my dad, flew in from Japan with his entourage, told us everything. And I recently was married. So that was in November. So my honeymoon, I was planning for December. And while I was away, I believe it was uh, then they had a president, Carl DeMarco. He had initial, he had called, you know, everyone knows my dad's number. You can get it from anybody back in those days, you know, before emails and texts, text and all that messages. So he contacted and I got a call from my dad at that time. I don't even know if there were cell phones, but uh, I remember, you know, calling him back and he goes, you know, the guy says he's the president of WWF and that he would like to meet us. Uh, he would like, you know, to try to see if we would be interested to come with the WWF. So you know how it is. The WWF just doesn't make cold calls to anybody. There's always a reason behind it. There's a motive, right? Like, like who was I? I was a greenhorn. I just started in Japan where no disrespect to Japan. It's more strong style. It's not, you know, sports entertainment that the WWE is, right? Like they're, they're the... They're the epitome. They're the top. They're the the echelon, right? Like according to Bret Hart, I remember when I signed, he goes, "Welcome to the big leagues," right? They knew everything. They were athletes. They were actors, and just the whole package. It was phenomenal. So, um, so I remember, like you know, you know, I was so young. I go, "There must be an angle. Like, what's going on here?" So we didn't pay it that much mind. I think I came back, and he goes, "Can you put some wrestling highlights together?" you know, some of your matches and wrestling highlights. And, you know, I'm like, we don't have a library. So you make shift, you know, you get it from Japan. We did a few shows in India and Manila. You put some highlights together, you know, entrance, exit, a few high spots of drop kicks. And they go, they just want to see like the presence, not like to, you know, analyze how you work. That, if that's the case, they bring you in, they, they, they try you out. They put you in a couple of matches, maybe some dark matches, but uh, they knew we were totally, totally open, said, listen, I'm just green, just started a couple of years ago, and it's in Japan. So they know the situation in Japan. It's not WWE. Go, no, 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 that's not a problem. That's not a problem. Because they were on a time clock, right? They needed to sign this deal. So I, we went and met with Carl DeMarco. We gave him the video. And uh, then soon after, I left in Florida. So that's when the call started coming. And my dad goes, you know, Vince McMahon wants to meet. Um, you know, he loves everything and he wants to negotiate a contract. Well, that doesn't happen either, right? You don't just negotiate a contract. And I said, dad, you know, and because I, I was so naive and I never had aspirations for WWE, I was just tickled pink to be with my dad now wrestling in South Africa or wrestling in, uh, you know, in, in India or Japan. So, and I was so naive, right, to the world of business. I didn't know anything. So it wasn't like we were trying to play hardball. I go, dad, I'm in the honeymoon now. Like, I, like, can't we wait till after? Then I remember a call came again. He goes, he called again. He goes, he has office in Florida. He can fly down and meet us in Florida and he'll fly me from Toronto. Like, they were really urging, like there was an urgence to sign. And uh, I said, dad, I'm not going to meet anyone. Right. Like I was 23, 24. Just imagine this. Right. Yeah. It was not negotiating. I just go, dad, I'm not going to negotiate. I'm on my honeymoon. So they go, okay, when are you coming back? The next day we want to fly you out. So that's what happened. So I, I arrived, I believe it was, you know, uh, before Christmas, 
you know, a few days before Christmas, I landed. Next day, Carl DeMarco met us at the airport and they flew us out to uh, New York and then picked us up and took us to Stanford. So then we're at their headquarters, never met Vince, and now they're taking us on this tour. You know, they want to, it's like going to Walt Disney, right? They want to really, really, you know, um, show what they are and how big they are. So I remember they took me in New York, they had their stylist, they had uh, their art designers, this is the robe, this is what we like to do with you. You know, like it's like a comic book hero sort of thing. Yeah. And they said at the time, I think one of the artists, they go, they only do this for people they have big plans for, right? But I'm 23, I'm a, I'm a greenhorn. Like, what do you have for me? Like, I haven't proven myself. I haven't done anything. But everything was expedited. Then they flew us to Stanford, took us to TV studios, you know, the big wow. There was a, a nice guy at the time who was their, uh, you know, their, uh, their writer. And they had, they had made a, an entrance for me. Little did I know it was a copy of Sultan and Iron Sheik. But they said, this is for you, Tiger. And finally, we went back. They fed us lunch and everything. And, and then we were back in the office. And uh, that's when Vince McMahon came. And uh, very, you know, he just he is just an unbelievable aura and a presence. I remember that. And Bruce Pritchard was there um, and, and Carl DeMarco. So they took us in his private office. And we just started talking, he goes, I love everything that I've seen and all that, but there was nothing really seen. It was a highlight video. So he goes, yeah. I want to sign you, for, I want to sign you for life. And, uh, but he goes, legally, I can't. So I want to do a 10 year contract with you. I don't want to get into the numbers and all that, but uh, it was, it was substantial, like a 10 year guaranteed contract. You work, you don't work, you're getting paid. Okay. So, so I said, uh, so he goes, what do you think? What, what will it take? So, you know, remember, I'm a greenhorn and my trust and loyalty is with my dad. So my dad was sitting next to him. And I said, Mr. McMahon, thank you so very much for this. I'm very humbled. But ultimately, the person that's going to decide if I come or don't come is my father. So I turned, turned it over to my father and I said, my only one request would be, if you're asking a request, I would like you to sign my father with a very respectful executive role with the company because he more than deserves it. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. So he was kind of taken back by that. And uh, he goes, I respect that. So then he started talking with my dad and my dad was, you know, he's just a straight shooter. And that's the reason why he's been in Japan for so long. He's the longest standing wrestler in the history to go to Japan over 40 years, right? And he was voted the most popular and the most respected by magazines and by wrestling companies. Um, so he, he, he doesn't play games. He's not a two-faced guy. And so he goes, uh, Vince, this is how we do it. I'm not into negotiating. You write down on a piece of paper what you think my son is worth. And I'll either say yes or no. That's it. Yeah. And he goes, oh, okay. And he goes, but... I would like you to bring your proposal to Toronto. We'll have a dinner at the house and, uh, and we'll go from there. So he goes, absolutely. So in a couple of days, I think it was Vince McMahon, Bruce Pritchard, they flew to Toronto, Carl DeMarco picked them up and it was winter. I know it was snow and they came to our house in Milton. So I think my brother greeted them at the door and he gave them two contracts in sealed yellow envelopes. So my brother then gave it to, uh, 
I think it was our cousin or something. And they went and took it to the office and put it in the office. And he goes, isn't your father going to see it? He goes, my father doesn't do business on social, right? Like we're going to eat here. We'll sit down. So he said, okay. So we, we exchanged pleasantries. We sat down, had a nice prepared meal. Um, and after that, you know, we said goodbye. And um, then I called him the next day. I said, you know, we accept it. And we, we accept the opportunity because they were going to groom me and teach me. That was the whole thing, right? So I remember then uh, uh, they were really excited. They go, we want to make a big announcement. We want it to be live on Raw. We, you know, so Asia sees it and all that. They had me doing dubbing and Punjabi and Hindi. Uh, so I spoke that language and it was a message to the board of directors at Star Sports, basically saying, I've signed, I'm from India, I'm really excited to kind of, you know, validate the deal is done. So then they can go and renegotiate terms of their renewal. So um, we did all that, it was very positive. And then I was just sitting at home, like I wasn't getting called in and I was only coming to TV. And then, you know, then there's the rumbling start with the boys, hey, you know, because later I learned, right? Like you have to earn your spot to be on TV. You got to be on the road. You got to pay your dues. You got to work the grind. So then when you get a shot on TV, not only the boys, but the fans, they go, okay, you know what? He's paid his dues. He's earned it. He's not just given it. But I was never booked on any house shows, never. I think out of my entire, I think until I got hurt after five years, um, it was it was shown in the court papers and all that. The total house shows that I was ever booked for out of one calendar year was maybe 20. But that's where you practice your craft. Yeah. Right? So it was almost like I'm being set up. I'm not saying Vince McMahon. He's been very honorable, very straightforward. I consider him to this day, you know, he like it or don't like it or whatever people, I consider it a blessing. I learned a lot with the WWE from theatrics, from entertainment, uh, given the great opportunities. So I'm very grateful from there. I have no ill will towards anyone because that only kills yourself. No one else feels it. So I'm at a, I'm in a really, really wonderful place in my life. I'm very happy. Uh, but that's, that's evidence, right? Like I was never booked. Yeah. I was always come to TV to kind of, and it was shown out later that I would fall flat on my face. You know, he's not getting chance to be booked. There was a lot of indie bookings coming for me. They would never let me go to indies. This came out after in court papers. I didn't know what was happening. I was so green. And, um, but I remember uh, maybe a month after I was called in and he's a great guy too, Tom Pritchard. And uh, so he wanted to go through some training with me. So it was Jim Ross that set that up. And obviously just to show what he can do. And obviously a lot of my weaknesses were exposed. Like I had never worked for like maybe a year. I didn't go back to Japan and now I'm not being booked. I'm not being trained. So a lot of weaknesses. And I remember then, uh, you know, Tom going, are you here for, you know, uh, a certain period of time just so WWE or something can get some? I didn't understand at that time. I said, no, brother, they signed me to a contract. He goes, oh, okay. He goes, because uh, I was just wondering if you were brought here, you know, short term or something. And I remember then receiving a call after the tryout. I'm at the hotel. They used to put everything, everyone up in Stanford, I think the Holiday Inn. And I got a call. That was the very first time I spoke with Jim Ross, some two, three months after. 
he goes, Hey, I got, uh, I just talked to Tom. He gave me fabulous news about your training. He says that you're awesome and rave reviews. So that's great. That's great. But that's contrary to what reality was. I wasn't, I wasn't ready. I wasn't up. And so they could have let me go because I never even signed the contract yet. So there was lots of goodwill, lots of period of time where they could have checked me out and they did check me out. But, um, you know, as the story goes, that's, that's how it, that's how it evolved. That's how it started. Wow. That is incredibly interesting. That to me, that is just like all of a sudden you're thrusted into this thing and uh, yeah, all, all those side stories that you threw in there. I, wow. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about when you were brought to Kuwait. Uh, I, I'm sure you've answered this question many times before uh, from the 10th to the 13th of April, 1997, you win the Kuwaiti cup uh, defeating Al Snow, Billy Gunn, Mankind and Owen Hart on the way to winning it. Um, you know, how was that experience there? And, and, and you talking about feeling like you were a greenhorn, you're in there with these four experienced guys uh, over the ensuing days that you're there in Kuwait. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, the heat was just building already. I didn't know, right? After court documents and that, it came out exposed that, you know, uh, there was lots of heat towards my dad because a lot of these guys in office now were working under him or working you know, not, not his peers. So when dad was a star, I didn't realize any of that at the time, but there was lots of jealousy. So it was almost like trying to take it out on me. So now Kuwaiti cup happens. I believe it was in March or April. I had never worked a house show. So now I'm going on to almost a year and a half of not doing anything. So it wasn't really something to endear me to the boys. Right. Uh, And when you say, you know, you won it and you were like, these guys did their best to make me look good. Like I am so grateful to Al Snow. He is, you know, how much patience they had. And, you know, I understand they were saying, you know, Vince McMahon signed them. So, you know, there was lots of leeway given to me, but, you know, he had so much patience for me and he tried his best, but I was green at that time. And uh, the late great Owen Hart, you know, he could, he could wrestle with the broom and make him look good. So he, he did his best with me as well. I only have great memories of those guys. Uh, did I deserve to win it? No, of course not. But it was to build that market, right? Yeah. The way Middle East, India, Asia. So they said, give this, you know, the token brown guy from this region, you know, to make the people feel good. That was yeah. the only reason. But, but I had never earned it, that opportunity. I understand. It's, it's almost like uh, the Saudi boy that they've got on the roster now. He won a big Royal Rumble that they did in Saudi Arabia um, a few years ago. So, yeah. yeah, they're still doing the same kind of thing today, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'd mentioned Owen Hart, and and every time that I mention Owen on the show to somebody, I like to ask them if they have any fun stories of uh, uh, any interactions or funny <laughs> funny ribs maybe that you, you'd witnessed or, or, or pulled on you maybe. Um, you know, I'll give you something different that I remember of him. I don't, you know, uh, I just remember getting good counsel from him, good advice. At the time, I had a lot of respect. Uh, not I had, I still have a lot of respect. And we were uh, uh, friends with Martha Hart. Um, she had visited the house when she came to Toronto as well. He was a really, he was a really gentleman. He was a gentleman. He was a family man. 
And I remember a couple of times he gave me advice. Uh, one was a serious advice. I remember we're flying back. He always used to fly through Toronto to go to Calgary, get the connection. So I remember we're flying back and, you know, it was getting on me, right? The politics and, and, and they play a lot of mind games, a lot of mental, a lot of mental abuse. Uh, sadly enough, you see a lot of people taking their life, you know, and uh, it's to escape. It's to escape that depression. So I wasn't in depression or anything at the time, but it was weighing on me, you know, it, there's peaks and valleys. So I was in the, one of those valleys. Okay. Where you would try to where you would try to hide and you you get with the guys also that want to you know that are being rubbed the wrong way and you would make a click. Um, so he looked at me and he goes, "Why so glum?" I said this and this and he goes, "I give you one piece of advice: never take the boys or this work home with you. This is leave it on the road. When you go home, be with your wife and be with your kids. Also remember." How many other jobs out there would be paying you the salary that you're getting now? So always, I guess, you know, look at the glass half full instead of half empty. Yeah. So I remember that piece of advice. We were flying together, which I still hold very true today. And I, I give to others. The other one was more practical, a little bit funny. I remember we're going to the Middle East and, you know, not being savvy on packing and carry-ons and all that. So I had two bags and a clothes and, and I remember, uh, I don't know where it was, and he always had a carry-on bag. He never had checked in luggage. It was always carry-on, and he would say, listen, I only need the one tracksuit. He would wear the one tracksuit on the whole tour in Kuwait. And he goes, I just need a couple underwears and shirts. I wash them up, and I have my wrestling gear. He goes, because the last thing you ever want to do is check in your gear. Always, Tiger, have it as a carry-on. Because God forbid you know, you lose a luggage or it gets delayed, what are you going to do? So I laughed, I remember, because I always used to check in. I always wanted to be hands-free, walking yeah. to the plane. So since that time, I remember I used to uh, put in my gear in my, my carry-on. So those are two great pieces of advice I remember he gave me. <laughs> Oh, man, I, I always love stories of Owen, even if it's not like about ribs or anything like that. I, I just know that, you know, he was so smart about the way that he traveled, you know. He barely even Very paid smart. for a hotel room because he was always staying with fans. It's I remember idea. we drove him. We did a tour. Uh, I think it was in New York State. And we finished at Syracuse. We did the whole thing. Um, Madison Square Garden, then there was another city, and then we, Rochester, we ended up in Syracuse or Rochester, and my, my two brothers were with me on, we just drove, because that's not far away from Toronto, it's about three, four hour drive, so I remember Davy Boy and, uh, and Owen, we offered them a ride back, like if they wanted to come back, right, so we drove them, we came all the way, and I remember they wanted to stop halfway and they went into a convenience store and out came and they all came with baby food. I said, what the hell is, they said, this is so enriched with protein that this is the, what we eat on the road. So I, I was like blown away. So they're eating jars and jars of uh, baby food. And they're telling me which one like Gerber or something, which one's a good flavor, which one's not a good flavor. <laughs> so that was uh that was a funny thing. And we ended up getting into Toronto. We dropped them off at the airport. And uh, so it's just, you know, never looking for any expectation of a re return. That's just, you know, doing goodwill gesture. That's just who we were. And 
not yeah. looking for money, but yeah, they were very smart, you know, but not like, um, you know, um, malicious, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't devious. It was just uh, good fun. And you had to get to know them after a while, not to take it so serious, but they were good people, good people. Well, that's great to hear. And actually I'm getting the chance to talk to Georgia, uh, Smith on Tuesday, the British Bulldog's daughter, to talk about her father's life and uh, just let there's an exclusive out there for all the fans of the WWA network right now. Uh, this Tuesday, I'll be talking to Georgia. Um, Tiger, right now, I'm, I'm telling you right now, I'm getting bitten by mosquitoes so bad oh. that I need to do a bit of this. Okay. Oh, my, my goodness. It's, just, it's, it's, it's summertime in Australia, so. Oh, wow. That should okay. sort me out. <laughs> okay, no problem. If you wonder why I was scratching myself the whole time, then now you know. Um, no, no, no problem. <laughs> I don't make any judgments, no judgments. Uh, so April 21st, 1997, you make your raw debut against Salvatore Sincere. You're not under the gimmick that we famously know you as. Um, you know, uh, and and for most of the match, they're cutting backstage to uh, Owen and Brett backstage. Brett's busted his knee and all that stuff. Seems like a weird way to debut somebody uh, to be more of an afterthought uh, to Brett's knee injury. Um, what did you think of uh, all of a sudden being brought to TV like this? Well, I didn't think I was uh, prepared. Once again, it goes back, and it's not a conspiracy theory. It was proven. Um and, and Vince McMahon had no clue of this, right? He's so busy. He's running this multi-billion dollar organization. So he, he depends on people now to carry the ball. But the people that were kind of managing my, my time, as you know, I was never booked on a house show. And they were just trying to bring me and, you know, kind of like flop. So the match was uh, horrible from my, pers my perspective. Sal Sincere did the best that he possibly could. He was, he's a great worker and, you know, uh, hats off to him, but I was never prepared. There was, uh, I, I should never have been put, uh, in my opinion, on the TV, right? Remember, yeah. I wasn't brought in for a wrestler. I was brought in more to sign a TV contract. Yeah. So, and, you know, if anyone tells you anything otherwise, you know, um, that's their opinion, but it's just an opinion. I know yeah. what the fact is. I know the real story. Yeah. Yeah. I watched the match earlier tonight and uh, yeah, like I, I, I concur. It was a little bit awkward, um, but that's what happens when they don't put somebody on house shows and help them ply their craft and yep. get what they need, you know, in order to be ready for television. Yep. Um, so I, I did put it also. Like this. I put it, uh, brother, I put it like this. I'm a great believer in spirituality. I'm a great believer in karma. And the best way how I judge people when I do business is not by what package they put on in the front. You know, you know, anyone can lease or rent a car. Anyone can rent an office building. Anyone can buy a nice suit. How I judge people is by their health and by their family. That is the true judgment of an individual. You can't hide that, right? So if you're obese, uh, you know, when you don't need to be obese, like if it's medical, clinical, that's one thing. And if you're, you know, uh, telling lies, like this eventually comes out, right? And it, and, it, and it gets and it gets presented in through your health, 
and through your your home life. So uh, that's just a you know a note for self. But that's how I gauge people when I do business and all of that. And if I find like you know they're having health issues or whatever, this is karma. Like I, I don't owe anything to anybody but to myself. When I do a good deed to somebody, I, I'm not necessarily doing it for themselves. I'm doing it for myself, right? So you, you're very mindful not only of your actions that way, but you're mindful of the thoughts that you create as well. And uh, so that, I'll just put it as that, you know. So whenever anyone's going to talk or whatever, just see what their health is like and what their home life is like. Yeah, no, I get you. And I'm, I'm a big believer in karma as well. If anyone ever does wrong by me and then something bad happens to them, I call it karma. That's a lame joke, but it's a lame joke. But, uh, um, I also saw in an interview that you did that you were talking about this uh, fantastic idea that you'd come up with. Your mum was on your case about getting yourself back on television. It had been a little while um, and, you know, good on her for getting on your butt about it. And you thought about it and you, you, you'd been seeing a bit of Jerry Springer and you come up with this idea about doing like a Ted DiBiase type thing, but making it more of a way more <laughs> intense of a, of a situation on television and a shoot getting actual people uh, to, to actually do these things on television. You pitch the idea, they like the idea, they give you a script, you don't want to, you, you can't memorize the whole thing. Vince lets you do what you got to do. Um, so all of this, you film vignettes and stuff. You're working with Vince Russo a little bit with this stuff as well. Um, you know, tell me a little bit about that. Um, I've already kind of told some of the story, but um, you know, you've come up your your own idea here and I think it's brilliant. Well, thank you so very much. Um, first of all, it wasn't my mom that was trying to get me on TV. My mom was saying, you have to earn the money. Right, so, okay. Because I was on a guaranteed contract, checks are now coming weekly to the house, substantial amount of money. And I'm a kid in a candy store, right? And my mom goes, this is unearned money. And it's setting you up for failure. Mom's always right. 100%. Doesn't matter you're 45 or you're four. Uh, mums are always right. So yeah. I've always heeded her advice. And I said, I don't understand what you're saying. They got what they wanted. They got the TV deal. She goes, no. But it's setting you up. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's um, bad habits. It's setting you up for bad habits. You have to go and earn the money. And when you earn a dollar, you'll see what it fills you up with. This now mm. is not earned. Yeah. So for that reason, I, and then I said, I said, you know, and I don't want to mention any names because it's not, you know, I, I don't want to give any, any pump for anyone, but the person that was supposed to be booking me and he, he was a very high up on the corporate ladder that's in the organization. Um, he wasn't booking me. So I said, he's not booking me on house shows. So she goes, you got to figure out a way, but you, you have to go and start working. So at that time, they had like, you know, the wrestling side, which was the house shows managed by a certain individual and the other side, which was TV, which was Vince Russo. So I had never been exposed to Vince Russo at the time. So I was one thing I was really good. I was very meticulous on my notes. I was very meticulous. And that, that kind of saved me when we went to the, when we went to the, uh, 
when we filed the lawsuit later. And it was, you know, it's not hearsay, it's not his word against word. I had notes on everything. So even people were caught blatantly lying. I had notes to counter it, right? Um, so, and that was because of just the business I was involved with, my parents' business earlier on in my life. So I was just about notes. And at that time, there was no emails. So it was facts. There was lots of faxes I had. So I, I came up with this idea. You're right. I used to watch, you know, you had so much idle time. And uh, at that time, the Funky Dojo was happening. So we were always in Stanford training. And then uh, in the, the headquarters at, ca at the cafeteria, the TV would be on it. And they always had it tuned to Jerry Springer. So after a while, you know, I'm not into that kind of program. But, you know, after a while, you keep watching it, watching it. And I did some research. And when they did it from a budget perspective, he was on a shoestring of a budget compared to what Oprah Winfrey was spending. He was blowing her away on the television ratings at that time. I'm talking uh, late 90s. So I really started looking at it. And what I found so profound, the show wasn't about Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer was there to just set it up with yeah. his audience members. Yeah. So I did not even think of, uh, you know, the great... Uh, uh, million Dollar Man, Ted, Ted DiBiase at that time. Like, I wasn't even thinking of that. I was just so focused on, I really love this, right? I really love this whole idea because I've always liked working behind the scenes and, you know, creative and all of this. So I go, how can I make myself like a Jerry Springer in wrestling? And at that time, there wasn't any sort of implementation. I don't even think reality television was introduced in WWE at the time. So everything was scripted. There was no reality, as we know, reality television today. So yeah. if I'm not mistaken, the How Low Will American Go was either, either the first implementation of reality television in the WWE or one of the first. Yeah. Anyways, ne neither here or there. Um, so I came up with the idea. I figured out, okay, how can we you know, be a villain to Americans? So that's why I figured let's focus on how low will an American go while still being true and, you know, to Canadians and being a hero to South Asians. So I put the idea together and I figured out a valet would be, you know, at that time, uh, Simpsons had Apu. I believe there was Apu. And so I thought, why not do Abu, right? Uh, stereotypical. It's nothing to do with South Asian. It's more Middle Eastern. But hey, who knows over here, right? And uh, so I pitched this whole idea. And I sent it to Vince Russo and less than, I think less than, uh, it wasn't mere hours, just a few hours in that same day, uh, Vince called me, Russo. And he goes, I'm sitting here with Vince McMahon at his place in Florida. And he just is in stitches with this whole idea. <laughs> so I think this was uh, Thursday or something. And he goes, he wants you on raw live on Monday. And I believe I'm not mistaken, you can correct me because you got all the facts. I believe it was in Anaheim at the pond. I think I was wearing my white suit, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think that's, that's it. And he goes, but what we need is you're like the royalty, right? You don't look stereotypical like an Indian or South Asian to us Americans, right? So we need a really stereotypical looking, you know, like, like people over here, they would think they're really dark and small. I know it's stereotypical. It's also on the verge of racist, but 
that's what he wanted, right? Like, and we gotta, he's gotta be the guy that takes all the, the heat. And I said, I don't really have a big circle of stuff like that. He goes, we're going to get the tickets and we got to get you there. So I was trying to go through my Rolodex. There's no one in the industry, no one in the business. You know, I don't have a very big circle. Um, But I thought about my cousin, ironically enough. And it's not that he looks anything like that. He's a a great looking guy and everything. He was studying at, at the time law and he was at Harvard. (laughs) <laughs> so I, I called him up and WWE was really popular at the time and I said brother this is the situation and all this what do you think he goes and he was on his summer break he goes because uh, this was in the summer and he goes I'm there man I love it I go they're going to pay you they will pay you a salary they're going to pay your expenses like they'll pay his hotel they'll pay his airfare and everything so he was tickled pink and um uh, so, and he lived near me, right? So we, it, it was like the best companion. We grew up with each other. So we flew on out. I think it was Anaheim, if I'm not mistaken. And like, you're right. They gave this unbelievable, I don't know, four or five page script. At that yeah. point, there was, there was no agent anointed to me at that time. There was just, and I was like, and they go, this is what we wrote up and you got to be ready to go. And I'm not sure if it was, uh, I, I really don't remember what the first one was, but you're right. It was a shoot. So meaning there was no plant in the audience. You just go out and you choose a live member. And I was so petrified that uh, what if no one, because I would say, let me see a show of hands who wants 400 or $500 cash to come in here and be my example of how low will American go. So I was so petrified that nobody would pick up their hand and it would be like crickets. It was this, but I'm, I'm building up to that. So this is the back of the, in this backstage and I'm sweating. Yeah. I don't remember. So now I'm getting my suit on and uh, my, my cousin, you know, he's there. We had bought some stuff in little India and Toronto. So stereo, you know, the, the, the shoe with the curly toes and Indian garb and a little turban for him. And, and I went out without the turban. I went out, you know, just, royal and uh i was getting a gorilla position so vince mcmahon came out from his seat and he goes uh, so you ready i said vince i can't remember this he goes let me see your script and he took my script and he ripped it <laughs> and he goes you just got to remember the start and the finish okay and i and he goes you got that i said i'd remember that he said make up the stuff in between so um that was it. I swear to God, we went out, uh, repackaged, right? Tiger Ali saying they repackaged and, and we went in the ring and it got to the point, you know, let me see a show of hands. And, and uh, I'd be, you know, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was like every person in the stadium had a show of hands, like you seen the videos, <laughs> the whole thing was like, it was like a party. Remember it was the first segment of reality television. So that was new. It was revolutionary. And um, it, the skit went famously very well. And I, I came back to the gorilla and it was like, everyone was like really focused, you know, like nothing had happened. And uh, I think Vince then came up to me and he goes, way too long. He goes, how much millions do you want me to lose on you going so long? So I thought I did really horrible. 
And I went in the back and normally where the boys corral their screens, monitors, there's nobody there. So I thought this is horrible. So I got this and that. So the next day I'm in, um, I don't know what town we're at. And I believe it's, um, he's a French gentleman. I don't know if it's, uh, he was part of the Quebecers. He had an eye patch. Carl uh, Lillette. Great man. What a gentleman. And I'm sitting there uh, all alone. And he came to me, Carl Olette. Carl Olette, yes. Let. He goes, Tiger, how are you? How are you? And I said, good. He goes, you did really good. And I said, uh, you sure? Like nobody, he goes, no, brother. Nobody wants to mark out in front of, the, in front of you. He goes, I was in Gorilla. Vince McMahon fell off his seat laughing. Everyone was in stitches. He goes, all the boys were at the back in the monitors because nothing's happened like this, right? And you, that, this thing is a tremendous success, man. Like, I'm telling you, if you don't already know. And I said, holy shit, like I, I got worked, you know, but I was so green. So then I remember I walked into the cafeteria, Vince McMahon's at the front there with Steve Austin, Undertaker and the rest are there. And then Vince yells at me, hey, what are you going to do now? You, you know, and I was scared. Like, I was going, holy shit, what did I do wrong? And he goes, uh, you know, are you going to give dog food to somebody or something like that? Keep it coming. Keep it coming. Big success. Something like that. So then you knew it was really good. So now you're climbing up the valley, right? Like there's a valley. Now you're going up the peak, right? Now you're climbing. But I was so green, I didn't know. It didn't change me. The, the cameraman, all of them would come awesome tiger. That's amazing. I love that. I love this. I love. So everybody was really into it. I don't want to say marking out for it because, you know, it's still a work, but everyone was really excited. And I remember a year later, God bless him. Uh, I think it was uh, Ray trailer, big boss man. He came back and he goes, I'm a huge fan. I go, what do you mean? He goes, whenever you're on live Monday night nitro, all of us are around the monitors watching you. Cause he goes, we're all, trying to watch each other, but he goes, yours, like everyone is watching your How Low Will American Go? And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, like, are you kidding me? And, uh, and I remember, you know, kudos to Vince Russo. You know, he saw something and then it was starting to build my confidence. Um, and then he, I think he was working something, maybe an angle for an IC title run or something. It was starting to build. It was starting to build. And um, next thing you know, you know, he, he went, down south and then all of a sudden you know uh i had not gotten over 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 at that time working and all that it was the gimmick was over so then i kind of fell into the hands of the guys that weren't booking me on the house shows anymore and they just wanted to to figure uh, to try to finish it and what a lot of people maybe are not aware so they're stables right so every agent you know they'll bring in somebody uh, and then they they try to take care of that guy and push it because as that guy gets elevated, then the agent stature gets elevated as well. Yeah. So what a lot of people don't realize is there was no agent or middleman to bring me in. It was Vince McMahon himself, right? He came to the house, he signed me. So after he got what was required, there was no one to kind of take me under the wing and to build me. Like I had no advisors, I had nothing. Um, Jim Cornette, uh, I think he's, he's a genius. You know, he was uh, a great mind and he was helping me on the uh, How Low Will American Go segments. 
Uh, I don't know, I can't speak for him, but I had a great time working with him. I learned a lot from him. Um, I really don't have any ill will to say about anybody, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, there's experiences that everyone goes through their life, you know, there's positives and negatives, but you learn and you grow from that, you know, that's yeah. how I look at it. You, you try to, you know, you, you, you try to build from it and grow and, um, and that's how it was. So it was, it was wonderful, wonderful experience with that Hello Will American Go. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I'll say this, uh, I'm a big fan of Vince Russo and I know that over the years he's mentioned you several times and just sang your praises saying how much he, he wishes that he could have done more for you, but obviously he had left. And, and I know like people that Russo was high on after he left, like a D'Lo Brown, uh, all of a sudden the pushes that they, that he had or people in the same position as him that Vince was quite high on their pushes ended up being significantly smaller once he had gone. Um, but I do remember Vince saying on one of his shows, I would really like to talk to Tiger Ali sing again. And, 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 and uh, that, that's something that I remember anyway, because. Um, wow. It's, uh, it's, it's wonderful to hear. Uh, you know, uh, he, he really, he really, really gave me an opportunity, which I'm very grateful for. And if there's anyone that kind of, you know, uh, and I know he was so busy, but as a, as an agent role where I didn't really have anyone after Vince signed me, he was the one that kind of, um, you know, uh, was helping me. He was instrumental because he was pushing that how low will American go. And it used to get so exciting that he was coming up with ideas as well. You know, he goes, uh, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. So, and Ed Ferraro, he was there as well had a great time with him as well. I only have positive things to think about him. It's just sad, like, like the way you're saying that one thing I didn't realize is that, and I didn't understand, and I still don't understand to this day because that's not the, the environment I create in our business, right? Like we have several staff and employees and C-level people. Um, over there, it seemed like everyone was kind of paranoid about their position. And everyone had contracts and all of that. And I just figured like, why wouldn't you try to work with each other and try to elevate the, the company, right? But uh, a lot of people said loyal loyalty, but I don't think there was any sense of real loyalty, you know? Um, I, I, uh, I remember uh, that, that's kind of, not from everybody, but that was the kind of impression I got from quite a few people, you know? The other person, which I had, uh, I have huge, uh, just huge respect for was uh, Mark Calloway, uh, the undertaker. I remember, you know, asking his advice and wanting to sit. I pitched the how low American go idea to him. This is what I'm thinking. What do you think? And he goes, I think it's amazing. He goes, um, and no, no wiser words were spoken, but I didn't really understand it. He goes, you got to just be sure that you're prepared to carry it. Right. Like uh, once this thing goes, and uh, I didn't understand it at the time, um, but I give him huge respects because he respected my dad so much. You know, I remember um, at Owen Hart's funeral, um, we would show up at the hotel or something the day before, and my dad, he wouldn't stay with, he, you know, he would be on his own. He has people all over. So he would drive to meet me at the hotel. And when my dad would get out of the car, and I think Undertaker Mark Calloway was showing up at the same time, I remember Mark walking across the parking lot and pay respect to my dad. And uh, for me, if anyone knows me, 
you pay respect to my dad, you have my loyalty and my heart for life. So um, I'm, I'm, I just have huge, just huge respect for him. The other person that I have uh, huge respect for is Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. Um, he became kind of my first travel companion, you know? And uh, I remember, cause I was alone. Like I, I had yeah. nobody, you know? And I remember he goes, hey, Tiger, are you traveling with anybody? And I said, no, I'm not. He goes, well, why don't you come with me? You know, come with us. And I, he had Brian Christopher, D'Lo, Mark Henry. Um, he goes, why don't, you, why don't we come, why don't we hang out? Like it was just, uh, he didn't have to do that. And he was building at the time, but I developed a lot of respect and admiration for him to try to, you know, just befriend somebody that he didn't really need to befriend, you know? Um, so huge respect. So I'm so happy for him, for all his success. That's once again, karma, right? Like yeah. he's done so good. I remember uh, even at restaurants and all of that, because I believe his mom was a wait waitress at once upon a time. So he had this, you know, this, um, this uh, huge respect and he would always leave a big tip for the waitress. He goes, Tiger, you know, because she only makes so much. She makes the money on the waitress. I know how that is, you know? Yeah. So that's all the blessings. It's all the blessings, you know, that he's received. And um, so a lot of, a lot of wonderful, I have a lot of wonderful memories with a lot of great people, you know, Bret Hart, uh, Hitman Bret Hart. He's the one that referred, not necessarily myself, but my dad, when Vince McMahon was looking back in the day when, you know, for that TV deal, he called yeah. Bret Hart and he goes, you know, who do you know of South Asian, whatever we need to do this TV deal? And he goes, there's only one guy. It's Tiger Jeet Singh. Oh, wow. And, uh, and he goes, really? He goes, you think he'll... he goes, no, no, he's like celebrities, like, you know, an ambassador, but his son started, his son is doing some stuff in Japan. So that's how it all, oh. uh, that's a really key piece. That's how it all kind of interlinked. And he was very close to Carl DeMarco. So that's when Carl reached out to my dad. Right. So huge, huge respect for Bret Hart as well. And, and I'm sure there's other people, you know, as we go along memory lane, you know, there's, there's people along your life that made an impact, right? And, uh, but these are the ones that really stand out fresh in my mind. Excellent, man. Yeah, that's quite, quite a list of people. Um, I wanted to ask you quickly about um, having your father and the Iron Sheik with you for a brief period of time and wondered why that kind of went away uh, very soon. Uh, and if you have any stories of the Sheik, cause I know Iron Sheik is uh, quite a character. Well, Iron Sheik, huge respect for him, you know, and especially from people of South Asian descent, you know, you, you, you have a reference like he's an uncle or something like that. Um, never traveled with him. Um, never was part of the extracurricular activities. Uh, but I'm a huge respect for his wrestling prowess and everything that he achieved, even amateur and, 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 and to his professional career. Um, but I think they were just trying to find a spot for me, you know, and trying to, you know, bring Iron Sheik. And I think he was with Salt and Rikishi at one time. Yeah. And, and then they brought him here and they said, maybe we can get some heat, right? Because that's the, 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 the best way to get heat is you know, aligned with the Sheik and uh, Tiger Jeet Singh, right? Yeah. And I think we had a Canadian flag and an Indian flag and we were building up some heat, you know, it was just natural heat. And then I think the Canadian flag was dropped because I think Bret Hart and the, you know, the, the, um, 
that was heart. Doing that thing. They, were, yeah. they were doing that angle with the Canadian flag. And so, yeah, this, uh, it was a great time. It was just learning experience, um, just trying to learn and move along. And, uh, but uh, the, the house shows, not having house shows, that was kind of like the Achilles, you know? And, uh, and uh, but yeah, I, I, I would never, you know, if I had a chance to go back and rewrite history, I would never do it because where I am today, it's because of all, all of that happening. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I can't dream of being in a better place in my life than I am today. Oh, I'm happy to hear that, man. Um, uh, so you mentioned uh, your cousin who was on television with you, who's under the name of Abu. Uh, Abu, yeah. But I, I, I assume he had to get back to Harvard and uh, he was yes. replaced by Pablo Marquez, who is now yes. Babu. Uh, and they yes. never they never mentioned anything about that on television, but they just <laughs> they just added a B to the front of the name and uh, they're on with it. But um, uh, working with Pablo uh, and and doing all the things that you did, I mean, let's just list some of the things of it. Some of the highest rated segments that ever took place on on television. Um, you know, someone had to kiss him after he had been eating sardines, uh, dog food, worms. Someone had to deep throat a sausage. Uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, crazy stuff. And I, I will say uh, that my favorite is probably the one where some, the, the woman had to kiss Babu. Uh, and I love the uh, afterward when Undertaker and Kane came out and Jake uh, slammed yeah. you both. Uh, I thought it was yeah. just a great comeuppance for the bad guy there. Yeah, but, um, yeah. uh, you know, tell me about those segments and, and how much fun that was uh, in the ring and, and, and these people coming in the ring to do this stuff. I think uh, first and foremost, I never really um, appreciated the moment. You know, when I was in the moment, I never really appreciated the moment. And I also, I don't think I really had any knowledge of how impactful it was on so many different levels. You know, uh, you're making South Asians, like billions of people, you know, watching this thing, driving up the ratings. Like they're so excited to have a hero on mainstream American television worldwide, giving it to Americans. Um, so that that's something that probably a lot of fans aren't aware of. Like the ratings went through the roof and I'm glad you alluded to it. Uh, during those segments on Raw, and there's documentation for it, the Nielsen ratings used to come the next day and they used to break down the Nielsen ratings per quarter. And that how low will American go segment was the highest ratings out of the entire two hours or one hour of raw at that time. Steve Austin used to come in number two with the championship belt. So it just showed you the pendulum where it was kind of shifting at that time. It was, you know, the entertainment wrestling is awesome and all that. So, you know, I, I consider it a blessing, you know, when they kind of, you know, rope me in and tied me up not to wrestle. And then I had Vince Russo to try to, you know, build up more of the entertainment side. And this was said on many occasions, you know, uh, you know, Steve Austin would come into the dressing room and he goes, the kid, the kid beat me again. You know, just <laughs> such an unbelievable uh, show of respect. And, and that's when I just started having some sort of like, uh, you know, um, I started developing a friendship with Steve Austin, you know, like, like he wasn't like a machine, you know what I mean? There was a human side to him, but because he was the man, he was so focused and he, you know, his bandwidth was so limited. He was being pulled everywhere. You never really had a time to kind of develop that rapport. 
right? So that was the kind of breaking of the ice with me and him and we would chit chat, but you know, he never had to do that. But uh, that was like putting me over then, you know, like the kid beat me again, you know what I mean? On the rating, yeah. like it was, it was crazy. And, and, and uh, I, I want to share what probably people aren't aware of is that the reason why we kind of made the transition uh, from Abu to Babu, number one, the university, but university wasn't calling him back. He still had another month, but at that kissing scene, I remember it was Cornette, Jim Cornette. And it was like, Hey, we're going to put sardines and you'll do a uh, little French kiss. And my cousin at the time, I think he was 17, 18. He had never even dated a girl. And in South Asian culture, it's not really positively looked upon. Right. So just because you're in America, but still we're going home and he has a family and, you know, maybe people, you know, of not of the South Asian background won't really appreciate it, but it's not really positively looked upon. Right. So entertainment has its limits. And uh, so he said, brother, I can't do this. Now I'm sitting there. I'm going, I understand why he can't do this, but <laughs> that character is building you know, it's, it's building momentum. It's like a snowball coming down the hill, but I could not push him. I could not push him. Like I, I said, and I did not want him to feel guilty. And I said, I understand. Um, so I, I remember going back, there was no, no cell phone. I went to the pay phone in, in, the, in the dressing room and I called my dad and I said, this is the situation and all this, dad, I don't really know. And he goes, you don't worry if it's meant to happen it'll, it'll happen. Right. You, but you did the right thing. You don't want to put them in a compromising position. That's not good. It's not, it's not good for the relation. Money is not the end all. Right. So I said, okay, dad. And then all of a sudden Pablo Marquez was walking down the hall and he <laughs> caught my eye. And I said, dad, dad, I got to give you a call back. I think I found, he goes, who? I think, I think I found Babu. Just <sighs> like that. So I hung up the phone and I said, Hey, how are you? And he goes, oh, Mr. Tiger, you know, he's very respectful. Mr. Tiger, how are you? And I had done enough episodes. So, you know, it built some clout, right? Now you're coming yeah. up the, the mountain again, right? So people will look at you differently. I'm the same guy, but now they <laughs> give you space. They give you more respect. They don't bully you. You're not pressured. So you Mr. Tiger, how are you? How are you? I said, no, man, you don't have to do it. Nice to meet you. I said, uh, do you work here? He goes, oh, I'm with ECW. I do some shows. I'm from Puerto Rico. I said, what are you doing over here? He goes, well, they had called me for a dark match. It's canceled. I go, would you like to do something with me? Have you seen my skits? He goes, oh my God, they're amazing skits. I swear to God, it was at that night. And I said, okay. So I went and told my cousin, I said, uh, someone's here to save you. You know, and I went to Jim Cornette and I kind of sold him on why it had to be changed. He didn't understand. He goes, what? It's just entertainment. It's not entertainment. There's a culture, right? Yeah. So I said, anyways, this guy is ready to do it. And now we, he's going to go back to school anyways. And now we can change over. He goes, okay, you know, it doesn't really matter. And let's do it. And uh, so then we, we would do it. And it was a, he was a big success, very, very popular. And that's when I started. Uh, I think it was that one. You're right. That's when Undertaker, it was so much heat. Yeah. So much heat built up. Like, honestly, I couldn't even hear my, I couldn't hear yeah. her. There was the crowd, so much. The crowd went the crowd crazy. Static. And I didn't know how to ad lib. Remember, I had not got the freedom. Because if you're, if you're still building 
they want you to be tight. But now when you, you're over, now they allow you to ad lib. And I was just starting to get into that, but I had not gone over like, Hey, I could have done this. Hey, I could have said, Hey, show me a show of hands. Who wants to see this? You know, this, whatever topless, you know what I mean? Like (laughs) I would never let her, I would never let her go topless, but I had the people. And I remember it was the rock. He told me in the back, he said, brother, you got to play with that, man. You have it. He was so far ahead, you know, like, um, and uh, I said, really? He goes, yeah, man. Like, it's all about the ratings and you're over. You, sh- you should ad lib it. Just say, you know, this skank, you know, who would want to see her, you know, <laughs> the puppies or something. But it was so out of my character. Like, that wasn't, I was not, at, you know what I mean? Like, at that point of entertaining. Um, and I remember in the back, I, I went to thank Undertaker of the choke slam. I, I said, I hope I did everything good. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, I, I, I think he, he apologized. He goes, I'm sorry, brother, for taking so long. I said, why? He goes, I was trying to find a place on the map that there was no eggs. I go, what? He goes, yeah, they were throwing eggs and stuff at you. And I said, I don't even know because you're in the moment, right? And he goes, yeah, the whole canvas was eggs. And I was looking for a place because I didn't want to mess up your suit. <laughs> God bless him. Like, I remember those kind of things, right? And it was just euphoria man it was you could do no wrong and then I started getting comfortable and I think there was a lady the next one to take her clothes off and that's when I started you know I said what's your name and she goes uh, and I said it doesn't really matter you know get with the program and take off those clothes and I did it once or twice and then someone told me something you know I don't know if it looks good for you to do that or whatever and uh, I think a few months later the rock he started coining it yeah. and the history history speaks for itself you know he made <laughs> dollars off of it good for him but uh that's one of those things you know you remember you know um you know that's that's the origin and i think i only found out about that later there was some fans or something they they put something and something that came back to me go this is the date that tiger said it <laughs> this is the date <laughs> that the rock said it like fans are really into it right yeah. God bless the fans. And uh, so yeah, those are, those are some really uh, cool moments. All the segments were great. A lot of support. But once again, you know, once you're climbing and you're at the, at the peak, you could do no wrong. And, and then, uh, then Russo left and then it just kind of uh, staggered. Um, you know, I think I worked some house shows. I was going to um, say, um, you, you work a lot of house shows with Billy Gunn, Gold Dust and Al Snow. Yeah. Um, but one thing I found interesting looking back at your history was uh, the 30th of October, 1998, in a company called the WWA, you wrestled Kurt Angle in only his seventh match in Milford, Massachusetts. Uh, you're working with a rookie Kurt Angle. Um, so I wanted to know what it was like to, to work with him before you guys did that thing on television. So I worked with him before his introduction? Yes, uh, I believe his introduction was March 7th, 1999, uh, but you wrestled him on the 30th of October, 1998 in Milford, Massachusetts. Oh, I see, I see. Um, I only have, I only have uh, high praise for Kurt Angle. You know, he's, uh, he's a pure, a true gentleman. At that time, I remember we were training in the Funky Dojo 
And I remember I was walking by his hotel room at the time. And he goes, Tiger, Tiger. He goes, can you come here or something? Uh, my wife's on the phone. We're a big fan. At that time, how Lolo American Go had kind of blown up. And uh, I said, really? Okay. I said, nice to meet you. I talked to her only that. I think that's the only time I said hello. <laughs> and uh, yeah, then they tried to pair us in because the, the, you know, you know better than I do. So the best way to try to help a new, a new person coming in and to get fan reaction is to put them up with someone who has heat, right? So even if the baby face or the newcomer is not even known, you put them up against, you know, just like a heat magnet. That's what they were. That's when they used to refer to me like the headbanners and that you're the heater tiger, like you're the go-to heater. That's how it was kind of being coined. Not heat, like you have heat with the office. I guess I found out a little bit later, I had it with a couple of people unbeknownst to me because uh, my, my, my record with them is spotless, you know, no drug problems, no altercations, nothing. Even though they try to bring that up in court proceedings, it was baseless. But heat with an audience is a good thing, right? Like you just, they put me in with Steve Williams. They put me in with all these guys just to get them that reaction, which I yeah. considered an honor. I consider a big honor. So with Kurt Angle, I just remember, you know, just being in with a machine, you know, just unbelievable machine, unbelievable athleticism, unbelievable stamina. Um, and uh, that's, that's what I can remember. You know, he had not at that point for obvious reasons, you know, developed his character and that, that entertainment, right? So you're, you're in there with a machine that's just, you know, if you're in there for 10 minutes, he's, he's running for 20, 10 minutes, you know, no yeah. breaks, no pauses, no working up crowd. And, um, but I only have high praise for Kurt Angle up until then it built for his introduction and we blew the roof off of the place. Absolutely. And, and one thing that I wanted to say was that it's such a shame that, because that you Tiger Ali Singh, this this hated, such a dislikable character, and Kurt Angle, this American hero, that confrontation. It's such a shame that at that point in time, his introduction to being on the roster wasn't going to lead to you and him having a pay per view match after a few weeks of television of you two going back and forth and things like that, or something like that happening. It's just such a shame because I just. When I watched that segment, and I remember watching it as it first happened, I'm Australian. I don't know who Kurt Angle is. I didn't know that he was an Olympic gold medalist. But yes. I was told within a few minutes that that's who he was. And I just felt magic when I was a fan watching that for the first time. It's oh, just a shame you. that it could not have led to uh, a feud, a story that could have led to a pay-per-view match and a little, little payoff for you and pay-per-view. Yeah, um, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, so I want to talk again about um, uh, Babu. Um, yes. Uh, so like you're with him for a certain period of time. He's, and I'll be honest, like uh, no disrespect to your cousin, he's too. He was too good looking for that role. Yeah. I think. I think. I think. I think Pablo. <laughs> he had that. He had that face that of, of that yeah. that servant that you know. He, yeah. Perfect. He he really looked. <laughs> oh man, it makes me laugh. But um. He really did a good job, and um, yeah, I just don't understand job. why he disappeared from the act at some point. He got released. Uh, and... Yeah, so I can answer that. So they were signing him to a contract. The guy was going to make some good coin. He already spent, started spending some good money, too. It was a dream job for him, right? He was a guy, I guess, uh, like the Virgil to Million Dollar Man, right? He would yes. be the guy to take the bumps and to work the matches, and we worked that 
royalty gimmick. And it was building up for the pay-per-view uh, in England where I was going to go against Edge. Yes. And he was going to be there. And I remember sitting at the rafters, Edge and I going over the match. Actually, it's Edge telling me what the match should be. I was just listening. And he goes, you know, if, if you're going to go over, then we'll do an angle where Babu comes in and distracts or something. And if I'm going to go over, we'll do like, you know, a finish or something like that. So I'm like, okay, it doesn't really matter. Right. And uh, so we're in England now. We're in England. We're at the arena. I think it was Manchester. I'm not really sure. Or was it? Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure. But we were there. I'll find out. I'll find out. Yeah. Yeah. So we're there. And Vince McMahon called me to his office. And he goes, okay, your valet guy, he's out. And oh. I didn't really ask too much. He said something at the airport. And once again, I don't know the details, but he couldn't get a flight out. He was detained or something at the airport. It's not like he went oh, to jail yeah. or anything. Yeah. But there was something, you know, maybe something outstanding or whatever. Like I said, I never asked. And he goes, you know, I can't have this. Like, you know, Vince, he had a lot of pressure, right? Like it was pay-per-view. It's a lot of stuff. And the last thing you find out, you know, you have this big pay-per-view match and now this one guy is not part of it. So he goes, uh, you're not having Babu anymore, right? Oh, like, wow. You, you, you wear the turban. I never wore a turban before that, uh, up, up until maybe my wedding, right? Where somebody else tied the turban for me. And... I never grew up wearing a turban and you have to have a certain, uh, I don't know if the word is confidence, but a certain um, respect. It's not that I didn't have respect or appreciation for my religion or culture, but you have to, uh, there's a connection. Turban for our people, our Sikh faith, it's not just uh, like a token. Like they, they thought it was just part of the wardrobe, right? Yeah. So I was, I, was, I was being thrust into this and I had this kind of mental conflict. Right. And, and I said, Vince, I've never wore a turban. He goes, it doesn't really matter. And I knew he was really amped up. He goes, get, get a turban and uh, get an Indian flag. And uh, maybe we're in Birmingham. No, no, we were in Manchester. We were in Manchester. I'm uh, actually, sure. I just read it. You were in yeah, the London Arena. There. Okay. And uh, so there. I was wrong on both. It's London Arena. <laughs> and uh, But I remember my brother's in-laws, they, they came in from Birmingham. Big wrestling fans. So I seek them out. And I said, um, I referred to him. I said, uncle, like, do you want me to wear a turban? And you don't, I don't have material. So it's like, you know, you don't just get yards of material. The material needs to be prepared, starched. It, you know what I mean? Because if you just get material, it's like cardboard. It's, yeah. So, and then I need an Indian flag. So where did they go? So they went while the show is going on, okay? So I'm not even preparing, getting changed, trying to work in my mind, the match. Um, so they come back with this unbelievable amount of yards of turban, right? Cause it's, it's, it's fabric. And this little, little uh, token flag. They go, we couldn't find a flag store anywhere. So there's an Indian restaurant. So they borrowed <laughs> the flag from an Indian restaurant. 
So I look, it's like one of those things that, you know, you, the, <laughs> yeah. in, the Olymp- in the Olympics, when the Olympians yeah. are wearing a little flag. And they gave me this unbelievable yardage. I've never tied a turban in my life. I saw my dad so many times, but I go, my dad's material is, it's all worn in and it's soft and you can tie it. And so I try to awkwardly tie this turban and you could just see it. Well, I did not do the turban any justice with me trying to tie it that day. I felt awkward as hell. And then the boys are coming and they're looking at me and they're trying not to say anything because they heard I have to wear a turban. And I don't know if you know this, but there's lots of racism in the US of A. <laughs> so, so, and when you don't have a clique or an ethnic majority, right? So the Hispanics, they had a good number of Hispanics in the backstage. Uh, the African-Americans had a good number, you know, the Caucasians, but I was the token South Asian. So I didn't have, so they could take pot shots at me or whatever. And so I would have a thick skin, but the turban, it hit a cord, right? It hit a really sensitive cord. So I, it was a blur. That night was a blur. I remember Edge wasn't happy because I think he heard from Jerry Briscoe that I was going to go over. Um, so I'm dealing with that. Um, I remember Jerry Briscoe, then Adam, I think it was Adam or Edge, he said, but it doesn't really matter. They said they're not going to show this outside of Europe, you know? Uh, so I was like, you know, I thought, I thought it's a work, you know, we've got to help each other, right? Uh, so that's one thing that stuck out. And then I remember, um, you know, getting to, getting to the stage, the gorilla position, still not feeling comfortable. Um, you know, he worked all his spots, whatever he wanted to do, you know, I'm bumping, bumping, bumping. And then I would try to get some heat. So I remember in the, in the match, um, we went out and they wanted me to read something about, you know, uh, you know, the separatists and, you know, Indians taking over or Pakistani prime minister or something. It was all a blur. I remember in the match, you know, I'm taking bump, bump, bump. And then I think they called it to go home, right? Because everything runs short and all this yeah. kind of stuff. So it, I never, it, I never, I never it got only went about three yet. minutes, I think. I mean, yeah. About th- so, yeah. yeah, so I didn't get anything, but he got all his stuff in. And at the end then, um, you know, they raised my hand. They said, put, make it really noticeable. You're putting your feet on the rope. And then after that, you know, I think he called it or something. I'm going to take a bump out, right? So I took a bump out. It was done. But that whole, that was a lot. That was a lot to carry, right? So unless you're of that origin and the reverence you have of the religion and the turban and the cultural significance, you'll never really understand what I was dealing with at that time, right? So it was way more than trying to figure out what I'm going to do in a match and all of that. So it is what it is. And, uh, and that was then, you know, the incarnation Then I started wearing the turban, but it was a blessing. It was a huge blessing because even though it was thrust upon me, I now wear it with great pride and reverence. Uh, I try to promote education. You know, uh, there's, there's a reason for me wearing this today. It's because I just came from a school. Uh, we're doing our annual charity event miracle on Maine every year that we do. And, uh, you know, I promote inclusion this way, right? I wear the red turban, wear the Santa coat, East meets West. That's why we're the best, you know, the differences make us stronger, not weaker. Let's have more tolerance instead of ignorance. So I'm invited to speak at, you know, in front of thousands of kids on an annual basis. 
but this is the time of year where I, they call this, they have the, uh, they call this uh, Santa Sing, you know, the tiger suit. So, uh, so that's, that's, that's basically, so there was a purpose for that. There was a purpose for my injuries. It was, you know, I was on a certain course, but I needed to be on this course that I'm on. Yeah. And uh, look, I, I want to say, like, after you mentioned this story about what happened to you at Capital Carnage in the UK, that it really pisses me off that, um, you know, you're, you're doing a good job. You're, good at, you're getting these ratings. You're doing a good job. You deserve to get a win at some point. And this is probably one of the biggest wins of your wrestling career on pay-per-view over Edge. And to, to find out that there's all this crap behind the scenes is it's disappointing and it brings me to my next point and I don't want to stick on anything too negative too long, but I listened to a quote that Bruce Pritchard had mentioned on his show. And um, he said that he was, he, they weren't your, your videotape that was put in was a highlight video and you were sold a bill of, that he was sold a bill of goods that wasn't correct and that you were terrible at performing the character and that someone else should have done the character and I don't agree whatsoever and he said you had no charisma and I'm like are you kidding me look at this guy he's he's jacked to the gills he's, he's good looking he cuts a promo like no other he's getting these ratings and Bruce Pritchard wants to go on his podcast and, and talk down about somebody that worked their ass off you know even if you said that you feel like you were a greenhorn at the time i don't give a shit you worked your ass off you worked so hard and you did a good job so i just wanted to like i know that i'm getting a little bit overly passionate but like it means a lot to me to have you on the show for me to stick up for you when thank someone you. says something bad because it's not fair it's really not fucking fair thanks brother i really appreciate that i i would leave it as as this um that's his opinion he's entitled to it uh, but the facts don't lie, right? The ratings were the ratings. It was the highest ratings in That's Raw it. when I when I was on. Uh, the character was over. Uh, so if you're not over, you're not going to get spots on Monday Night Raw repeatedly, week after week after week after week. And I would put more weight into what Vince Russo has to say uh, than with Bruce Pritchard. And that's not a knock at Bruce Pritchard. I actually have respect for Bruce Pritchard. I have nothing negative to say about Bruce Pritchard or Tom Pritchard. Um, nothing at all. You know, I, I actually thought, you know, uh, I thought highly of Bruce Pritchard. So I have nothing negative to say about the man whatsoever. And I, and I like we, Bruce we Pritchard too. Him. Yeah, we welcome him into our home, right? So there was nothing uh, fake or phony about that. Uh, there was nothing fake or phony that they initiated the contact. We did not solicit it. Uh, and we were very upfront about it being a highlight tape because we don't have footage. Absolutely. And, 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 and the only thing I can say is that, you know, when you go and buy a car, don't you take it out for a test drive before you buy it? <laughs> exactly. So we, 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 we had not executed the agreement, not, not follow through on the agreement like months later. I was brought in to try out with Tom Pritchard. I was given rave reviews by Jim Ross, which I thought was not right. Right, I, I I knew I wasn't of that caliber. Uh, they they we promoted it for signing the TV deal, so you know maybe he had buyer's remorse, but I was not brought in to perform as a wrestler like from day one. 
you know, like the caliber of a lot of other people, right? I was there to sign a TV deal for them, which we did very well. And then they go, okay, then I was never given any house shows. And, you know, yeah. even I believe, I believe if I'm not mistaken, it was told to me because I have a lot of respect for Carl DeMarco and he became a good friend here, a good ally. And I think it was months into it, into the relationship. And he said, I was at Stanford, I was with Vince. And he goes, Tiger, you're on that, outside of Vince's office, they have, um, I don't know if you're aware of it. I don't know if it's still there, but on the, on the top floor, when you're walking to his corridor, they have this mural of wrestling pictures, like, you know, the Hulk Hogan's and all of that. That's like, like the wall, right? <laughs> so he goes, you made that. And I go, what? He goes, yeah, I think it's someone, uh, uh, the giant or some uh, choke slamming you, but he goes, you made it. And he goes, I asked Vince about Tiger. And he goes, yeah, where is Tiger? Like he had no clue what was happening with me, where I was and all of this kind of stuff. So once again, not wishing ill will on anyone, I just go by karma, right? Absolutely. Um, how you treat others, how you act towards others. It's, it's not to them. You're going to get it back tenfold, right? So all you have to do is, you know, uh, just see the people's health and see the people's family life, right? I don't, I've never changed my number. I've uh, never changed my email. I've never changed my home address. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I'm, I, I have such an unbelievable respect and love and affinity for, you know, children and the community. We're very community orientated. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm very, very content. Well, that's nice, man. And, and I know that you're taking the high road and it doesn't bother you, but at least allow me to be the one that's angry for you over some comments that he made. And, <laughs> and, and, and I'm cool with that. Um, so look, uh, I haven't got too many questions left, and I know I've taken up a lot of your time, sir. But um, no problem. No problem. Uh, so th there is a time uh, where you go down to IWA, and then you come back to be the manager for Lowdown. Um, whose idea was this to have you be a part of Lowdown um, and and have D'Lo and and, uh, and Mosh or Chaz be be with you? And um, you know, how did you feel about that? So um, IWA, first and foremost, I want to say I had an unbelievable, wonderful experience. I only have the highest praises to talk about the late, great Victor Kionis, Miguel Perez, Salvio Vega, uh, all the young guys there. I, I really learned how to work and entertain. And uh, I don't know if you get a chance to see it. All you have to do is see some of the IWA footage, I think, that they put online in that you'll see the body was all cut up, all chiseled, like I was fast. And I, and I say that with the greatest humility. So if you get a chance to see it, check it out, and you won't recognize like, um, so I never had a chance to show that. But there's a reason for it, right? There's a reason for everything. Because um, if they had seen it, they would never have let me go, right? right. But, I got in, but I got injured, and I look at it as divine intervention to put me on the path that I'm on right now. As for Dilo and Chaz, I, I don't have any disparaging things to say about them. Uh, at least to my face, we got along famously uh, when we were in IWA, very cordial, very respectful. We worked with each other. We traveled with each other. Um, the only person that can make teams and all this and ideas, that's creative. So what was told to me was that 
you know, uh, Chaz is no longer part of Headbangers and D'Lo is not longer doing whatever he's doing. And they were kind of in a creative limbo, so to speak, right? There wasn't really anything happening for them. They had tagged them up, but uh, it wasn't really going anywhere. There wasn't, this is what was told to me. There wasn't any color, right? Okay. And uh, so they go, Tiger, we want to put you with them. So then there'll be color and they'll get some heat, right? So I said, okay, like, that's not a problem. Um, so I think we showed up and then all of a sudden they said they want them to wear turbans. Creative, creative said it. Now, at that time I had built an affinity. Remember, there's a lot of respect in culture. Uh, they, they obviously, you know, and it's no, no slight on them, but that's not their, that's not their culture. That's not yeah. their ethnicity. They don't know about it. So they felt awkward as hell. Right. A lot like how I did. And I am from the culture when it was thrown on me back in London at the pay-per-view. So they go, yeah, they want them. So it seemed like really comical. You know, it, I don't know what it was. You know, it was, they, they put them in these outfits initially that was more like pirates, pirates of the Caribbean or Aladdin. Uh, yeah. They're, they're unbelievable, great workers, unbelievable, great workers. And, um, but they weren't comfortable. They weren't comfortable. And then they didn't want them removing the turbans. And I remember I was talking with Stephanie or something. I said, this is like a lot of reverence and respect. Like it doesn't really look good. Uh, you know, you want me. And I think at that time it was Blackman where they wanted them him to tear off my turban in a match. I was, was going to mention that. Yeah, I watched so the match I, earlier with him yeah, uh, was, taking off the was, turban and wearing it. And I was like, yeah. and he threw it on and, you afterward. I was like, this. Yeah. Yeah, so that would never have happened today, right? Because of now yeah. there's a voice and there's an understanding. But like I said, there was a lot of, a lot of ignorance, a lot of bigotry, a lot of racism. I remember telling her, I'm very uncomfortable. I remember Jerry Briscoe saying, are you uncomfortable? I said, I'm uncomfortable. Uh, but they said, no, no, no. I think she said something like, it's like, uh, you know, uh, uh, what was it? Like Indiana Jones, right? It's just an acting. So okay. totally missed the whole point. Yeah. Well, that blew up in their face, right? Because then you had a South Asian uproar from India, from here and all of that. Big fires now coming up. And then all of a sudden they wanted me to go out on a peace mission, you know? You know, you know peace, all this, talk to unions, talk to this. So I'm in California, then talking to you know, union reps for like 5,000 taxi drivers in San Francisco. And, you know, and all the while, you know, you know, uh, D'Lo and Chaz, they're not happy with the gimmick and we're trying our best to make it happen because yeah. that's how we are getting TV time. They were fighting the Dudleys. They were fighting, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's, uh, for them, it was like a do or die. That was the way they were getting elevated, but they hated the gimmick. I absolutely was comfortable in my gimmick, but I, I did not like, you know, the roles that they were put into. Um, once again, nothing against the gentlemen. They're great guys. Um, but uh, that whole thing, it looked like almost like it was kind of like, uh, uh, you know, like a rib on them. It, yeah. it seems like it almost feels like that, right? But, but all of a sudden, we started getting traction, started getting heat, right? Then I started working the mic a little bit more. Then we would, they would listen. I said, why don't we respectfully remove the turbans and a tray with incense? Uh, I think that was Hunter's idea. I think he was saying, put some incense and roses on a flight when I was flying with him. And he had, he had suggested that. And um, so anyways, that's how it was, you know, we, um, but I know they were never really happy with it. And then, uh, 
we ended up back in Puerto Rico. I think I got hurt. I had a concussion or something like that. So I know there was uh, some ill will from them, um, you know, towards me that, you know, I sabotaged or ruined their careers. But if, if they were so well over and all of that, you don't need me. Like, you guys can continue. It has nothing to do with me, right? Managers yeah. come and go. Now you guys are established. Run with it. But the office, I think, told them that, no, no tiger. You know, you go to Puerto Rico. So it's we ended strange. up there. Yeah. We, we started working really good matches. I remember they were sending agents over there. I remember Dutch Mantel. I, I, I grew an affinity to Dutch Mantel. Uh, he became a manager there. The gimmick was really over. It was, you know, the heel gimmick was really strong. And I remember, you know, he would tell me like Percy, um, Paul Bear and all them, they would come and check. And they saw my matches and they said, this kid can work. This kid can really work. And Dutch goes, of course he can, you know? So Dutch would tell me these things. And but, uh, I, I had only great memories of IWA. Uh, I've never, you know, even Billy Gunn, you know, he was you know, great athlete. I, I thought it was an honor to wrestle with him. I know he didn't really appreciate it was at his dying days of the, what rockabilly. And then he transcended and did phenomenal things, but uh, it was great working with him. I, I had a great time working with everybody. Dustin Reynolds, the gold dust had a lot of fun working with him. He was just uh, a hoot of laughs. He would make me laugh all the time in the ring. And, uh, but it just seemed like there was this, um, this, you know, when people didn't know me, there was this false pretense of who I was, right? Like, yeah, there was, there was heat amongst the boys. There was like, he, he's really arrogant. He's really full of himself. But then they would tell me later, you know, Dustin was one of them or balls Mahoney uh, in Puerto Rico. They go, Tiger, you're not what I thought you were like it. Like the boys had built you up to be like this, but you're a really cool guy. I would love to work with you, you know? And, um, the way you see me now is the way I was with, with everybody. I never took myself seriously. I never took the job seriously. I took it as a work. It pays the bills, right? But it never consumed who I was. It never took precedence over my family um, and, uh, and our charity work and our, and our life. Because it, I know it's, you know, there is a certain time. And after that, that shelf life, then you got to come back to reality. So I didn't want to do anything that disrespected the culture because to them, it's a character. And I remember telling this to Vince McMahon, I said, you know, Singh, Singh is our Sikh name by birth. So for you, it's possibly a character, but I can't do anything to defame or bring dishonor because when I go back, I don't want my dad holding his head in shame. So I, 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 I got to be really careful with what we do with the character. And then I look at it as intervention, you know, I had two or three concussions in a certain period of months and that kind of, you know, put me on five or six years to rehabilitate from uh, post-concussion uh, symptoms. Right. Oh, my gosh. Um, I know that uh, from, from my, my research, uh, Lowdown was taken off television just before the invasion angle with the whole WCW-WWF yeah. uh, debacle, which obviously didn't work out very well for the company, which might be karma. Um, yeah. But uh, I want to ask you, what made you want to get back into wrestling in 2008 after a seven-year absence from the ring? So there's a, there's a groin, and this is, I think we're talking about India or the Tiger Fest incarnation? Uh, it, I, can, I can find out. Uh, yeah. I, I know Tiger Fest was in the, uh, from 2011 to 2014. Yes. 
Uh, let so, me just have a look here and see. Um, sorry. That's okay. I think you're talking about India. And there was a very large uh, drug problem growing amongst the youth. So the government over there, they appealed to my father, if we can hold wrestling shows for you and if you and your son can come, uh, it would be great, you know, motivation for the youth over here. And so it was only for that sole purpose. It was more than, you know, a payday because with the grace of God, you know, the family is quite diversified that we don't depend on the wrestling income. Um, so it was more for a higher calling if we can bring awareness and that kind of morphed in our charity work. And, and then all of a sudden we were doing annual charity events, Tiger Fest, you know, wholesome wrestling, um, promoting, you know, the hospitals and health and awareness. And, and I think, you know, you'll have testimonials by all of the wrestlers that were on the card in India or here. I don't think there's one of them with, that would say anything negative. I think they were all treated with honor and respect. There's one thing I learned in the WWE, and this is not a slight, you know, you grow. When you grow, you learn, you have life experiences. But one thing I learned was how not to treat, uh, mistreat people. You know, so I wanted to treat like the indie wrestlers. I wanted to treat the up and comers just like they were the main event people. So if you talk to anyone that was on the card from Sanjay Dot to Steve Carino, two guys that I have utmost esteem for, um, we would book all the wrestlers at the Hilton Garden, at Hilton Hotels, um, that their, their costs would be covered. Uh, we would cover all their airfare. There was no logistics. We would have them bust into the venue, which tens of thousands of people were there. That's an actual fact you can check on the internet. It was promoted by the city, okay? Uh, they would shut down roads. It was so many people. They would shut down major arteries, bringing in people. And after it, we would have a gala. So, it was a, you know, we would request the wrestlers and talent to wear a suit and ties and a big banquet facility, like five course meal with wine and drinks. Just, it was something I remember growing up and it was something I was drawn to because that's how it was in New Japan Pro Wrestling. When my dad would tell me of his memories in the seventies and early eighties, like treat these people as, as elite athletes treat them with dignity and respect and honor and they will feel it themselves. Right. And um, so that's, that's one thing I wanted to, to try to elevate, you know, and give them an opportunity. And, you know, a lot of them would be so emotional and they would come and hug me. And these are guys that were, you know, stay at the fifth wheel or, you know, a dive or, you know, sleep in the back of their car. And now they're at the Hilton. Right. And, uh, and they're being lavished at a banquet and they're being revered at a big event. Probably, you know, for majority of them, the largest crowd that they would ever wrestle in front of. So that filled me with a lot of uh, uh, just, you know, a lot of gratitude, you know, a lot of gratitude that, you know, at the end of the day, we're all human beings. I have nothing disparaging to say about anybody um, because they're acting based on their life experiences. Right? Like if someone is going to give me a difference of opinion, it's not that I'm right or they're wrong or they're right or I'm wrong. We're both right. Based on our life experiences, you have now developed you know, a certain attitude or a certain outlook or perspective on life. So how can I judge you for being wrong if it's from your experiences? So you're right too. And I'm right based on my life experiences. 
right? So the best thing to do is not enter into an argument or debate. At the end of the day, um, I have to look at myself in the mirror. I have a very clean conscience. Uh, and, and, that's, and that's the reason I believe I'm blessed to have the life that I have today. I work with fabulous people. I have a, I'm part of an unbelievable charity group with unbelievable volunteers. I'm blessed to have the family and my parents and my brothers. Uh, you know, we, we do this. Uh, I don't know if you're going to get into it. If you are, I'm going to let you lead into it. But this miracle on Main Street, you know. Uh, Please know tell us want... more about it. So Miracle on Main Street, it's going on our 12th year. And we're in the pandemic. So, you know, everything is canceled. So the event with the grace of God has built into something spectacular. So it's all privately funded. It's all us, our family, our foundation, which is a registered Canadian charity. So what we do is over the last three or four years, we donate, uh, we've donated $200,000 to uh, local elementary schools. And it's towards initiatives such as mental health, well-being, breakfast programs, where the school board education funding falls short. So different curriculum programs where they can help uh, use a lending hand. So we fill that void. Uh, there's no hidden agenda. I'm not running for politics. Um, there's no, like we're selling a business, you know, like I'm a, I'm a car dealer, you know, you know, I'm promoting my dealership. So there's no promotion of any kind. It's absolutely 100% uh, um, uh, zero administrative fees. So no one makes a penny from this. It's all on a volunteer basis. So 100, every penny from every dollar raised goes back to the community. This year now during the pandemic, you know, because we have a very large event in the middle of December on Main Street, they shut down Main Street in this municipality. And we bring in and we erect a 60 foot high Ferris wheel we have roller coasters, we have horse-drawn carriages, all the big McDonald's and Starbucks. They give all the free food, free drinks. We have this huge live uh, stage that's set up. So all the schools, children perform on the stage and it's called Miracle on Main Street. So it's a free event. Uh, thousands of children are bussed in from their schools and the entry fee is a new unwrapped toy. So they give that off to our partners, which are the police or the EMS or the fire and they put it in the big trucks and then they're allowed to just enter this wonderland of uh, just peace and love and, and it's building community awareness for them. So all the donations then we go to sick children's hospitals, uh, we visit them in the, um, in the, uh, clinic, in the critical care wards, uh, mental wards, we give the toys, we talk with them, we sit with them, then we, we support the women's shelters, we support Salvation Army, so last year's event alone in three hours, we raised $800,000 in, wow. um, in donations and sponsorship. Over the last 10 or 11 years, we raised over $10 million in uh, donations and sponsorships. So every year is building and building. So this year, you know, everything is shut down. There's no Santa Claus parade. There's nothing. So I think out of the entire, you know, months of the pandemic, you know, everyone, you know, it's about you know, adjusting, right? It's an adjustment on business, adjustment on life. But I think I really got hit hard, uh, which was last month, because the reality of the situation was that we wouldn't be able to do a charity event. You know, I wouldn't be able to visit the children. We wouldn't be able to donate to schools. We wouldn't be able to go to the hospital. So that really, really impacted me to the core. 
And I remember I was sitting with my mother and she said, what's going on? I said, she goes, I know you like to do things big and elaborate, but let's suppose now if you do it online or come up with a new way of not doing a live event, but still spreading awareness, and maybe you raise 10% of the proceeds that you would have raised. That's still 10% of the proceeds can help so much of the market, you know, families in need and children. And so we did this event because of my mom, you know, her encouragement, and we went online this year. So anyone in the world can make an online donation at miracleonmain.ca. Um, and because there's no live event, we're still visiting the schools with the social distancing. I meet the principals outside and we give them the check for the schools. So I've already visited a total of maybe 20 different schools. And then they play our video virtually, their virtual classrooms that they can play it and the kids are learning online. So they all see the awareness. So it's tens of thousands of parents are aware of it. And uh, the police are our partners. And so they're, they're working really, really hard. And so this year I wanted to expand the reach. So in addition to funding the schools, one of the hardest hit industries are restaurants, privately owned restaurants. So now we are donating $30,000 to support restaurants in the way of we're purchasing gift cards from them, you know, $1,500 or $2,000 worth of gift cards from each restaurant. And then we redistribute that to the families in need. So then they'll have a meal or a couple of meals and be able to treat themselves with some dignity, get dressed up and go into a restaurant for maybe some dining, you know, with their children. And um, so that's been really well received as well. So that this is something just just passion. So, um, you know, God is great. He's blessed me to be able to dedicate the last two months of every year now for the last 12 years. November and December is my time is 100% dedicated to Miracle on Main Street, promoting inclusion, right? I wear the red turban, the red Santa coat. I promote Merry Christmas, very loud and clear. And someone looking like me, you know, it's not a threat. You know, it's not coming as a sign of disrespect or alienating anybody because, you know, the way I look, you know, all of a sudden it's taken as, you know, um, neutral. That if Tiger can say it, we can all say it. And so we have so many Muslims that come to the event, so many uh, Jewish people, Catholics, Hindus, Sikhs, everybody comes and everybody says Merry Christmas. So, uh, so that's, that's my fulfillment. My, my destiny is the charity. My destiny is the foundation. My destiny is bringing happiness to the kids. And in essence, what's that done? It's kind of, you know, with the blessings of God, it's blessed my, my dream of an 18 year old kid of continuing my father's legacy for generations because wrestling is a job. You have a certain shelf life. Acting is a job. You know, astronaut is a job. You're accumulating for yourself, right? Um, but I went through that, you know, and accumulating for yourself, there's the temporary satisfaction. I've had a Rolls Royce. You have all the watches. You, you live the lavish life, but then you get bored of it. So what's there to replace it, right? What's there to do it? And what I found is that the ultimate sense of satisfaction and peace is giving happiness to others, right? So instead of making, a, making yourself smile in the mirror, wearing a nice watch, which is only temporary, but giving that gesture to some stranger, I believe in all my being that I am blessed today 
because of the blessings and the well wishes of these thousands of strangers, children that I meet in the hospital, their parents, their grandparents, you know, giving them some solitude, giving them some happiness. I believe I am who I am today because of them and their well wishes. And uh, so in, 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 you know, in, in uh, full circle, it was a blessing, you know, for me to have that, had that wrestling time during my early 30s. Uh, it was a blessing then for me to go through my recovery period in my early mid thirties, because I was regulated to stay at home, which I built an unbelievable relationship with my three children. You know, you, you, you hear a lot of parents in the summer, you know, extracurriculars, they coach their kids team or they take them. But did you ever hear of a parent that not only in the summertime, but when school is on, he's actually in the school coaching the children as well. So I was taking them to morning practice. I was coaching their morning practice. I would take them to the games after. And I remember a couple of kids and they mentioned to my sons, they said, my parents are wondering, what does your dad do for a living? That he's here every day with us in school. But that was a blessing. Like I got a chance to, and I have an unbelievable relation with my three children now, you know, that, uh, you know, how sometimes you, you're aspiring, you're trying to build, 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 and then you miss the whole boat of, the real thing is to develop, you're trying to, you know, buy things for your children and give them a, an unbelievable great life. But at the same time, you're not doing the bonding, you're not developing your relationship. And the next thing you know, they're adults, they're in university, and you have nothing in common. Yeah. So, so Christmas is a, an unbelievable opportunity for the two months, we celebrate it two months out of the year, we're all together, we play our board games, we play our cards. And, uh, you know, people that have known me since a kid, they go, Tiger, you've never grown up. You're still a big kid. And I think that's the greatest compliment that anyone could ever give me, you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, really happy. That's great, bro. And, and after you tell me about all of that and everything that you've done with your charity work, uh, the, the world right now, it's sometimes it feels like an upsetting place to be in. But um you're doing such a nice thing and such a great thing. And I just want to say thank you. No, thank you. You know, this is, uh, this is what we're here for. We're not, uh, remember, um, I'm doing this. Now I realize I didn't know it at the time, but the reason I'm blessed is from doing it from my heart with a zero expectation of a return. Like if I do a nice gesture to you, I'm not looking for anything in return from you that down the road, you're going to repay me because I'm developing my own karma, right? Yeah. So the more good I do, I know I'll reap the rewards for my good karma. If I do any ill will to you, I know tomorrow. So it's, it's my thoughts, right? From my thought, that's why, you know, you, you touched upon a few things. Maybe some people said some negative and all that, but they're only hurting themselves. I have nothing negative to say about anybody. I really don't. I'm a total peace. I consider it a blessing. Every person I've interacted and I've come across, uh, you know, one of the biggest blessings we receive, not from wrestling notoriety, not from my dad's wrestling prowess. You know, there's a, they named a new school uh, after my dad. It's called Tiger Jeet Singh Public School. It's the first public school in the world named after a pro wrestler. It's the first public school in North America named after a man of South Asian descent. Um, it has 1,400 children from junior kindergarten to grade eight. There's, lot of, there's lots of accolades and championship belts, but that's a job. But this 
creates the legacy. The Tiger Jeet Singh Foundation right. is a legacy. The school, Tiger Jeet Singh Public School, is a legacy. So my childhood dream of wanting my father's name to be carried on has been fulfilled. So I'm I am at peace, brother. I'm at peace. That's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. You did it. And that's so fucking great. I'm sorry for the swearing, but it's no, so no, great. No. It's so great to 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 see that you wanted your father's name to continue your time of professional wrestling. You wanted it to continue, but you've been able to find a way outside of the business to keep it going. And that's amazing. And and uh, I really appreciate that, man. That's a, it's a wonderful thing to hear. And um, uh, look, we've, we've gone some time now and um, I have one final segment to end the show. Uh, and after I finish this segment, I'll have a few more words to say to you. But this segment is called Five Second Frenzy, uh, Tiger. And essentially it's, just, it's, about, it's about 10, it's 10 quick fire questions just to learn about other things that you like in life, different things. And if you can't answer the question in five seconds, it's okay. Cause most pro wrestlers can't answer a sec uh, question in five seconds. So <laughs> here we go. Tiger Ali Singh, five second frenzy. First question, your favorite wrestler of all time. Tiger Jeet Singh. Knew it. Uh, second one, your favorite match you've ever had. Owen Hart. Your favorite book? Hmm. That's a great question. I got to pass on that. I got too many. That's fine. Uh, your favorite TV show? Uh, for a guy that doesn't watch TV, God. Uh, Maybe when you were a kid? Oh, when I was a kid, my God, I used to love, uh, and now I'm dating myself. I used to love Gilligan's Island. I used to love Happy Days. <laughs> yeah, they were my favorite shows. Excellent, excellent. Uh, your favorite film? Like movie? Yeah. Uh, well, it's probably not what you think. It's a Bollywood movie, and it's called Shole. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, your favorite musical artist? Ooh, that's a good one because my daughter does all my playlists and my manager is right here. We were listening to it. So I'm into a lot of Bollywood films, right? Shah Rukh Khan is one of my favorite actors. Uh, but if I were to name some English, it'll be stuff from Def Leppard, Led Zeppelin, <laughs> ACDC. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was actually, uh, we were on our way to a school and I was like dressed like this and I just lost myself. And, and I told my sister, I said, you should shoot a video of me. I bet you it'll go viral. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all the stuff I love. I love Def Leppard. I love ACDC. I love all those. Do you like Led Zeppelin? Love Zeppelin, bro. Love okay, Zeppelin. You're putting a big smile on my manager's face right here. <laughs> he's, he's a huge Led Zeppelin fan. Oh, excellent. I got the chance to see uh, Robert Plant perform about two years ago, um, just after my 31st birthday. So, okay. yeah. Yeah, he was fantastic, yeah. even at his age now. Um, anyway, back to Five Second Frenzy. Your favorite yeah. food, Tiger? Oh, my favorite food. Um, it's Indian food again, but not your typical, not like chicken curry or rice. So now that I'm lean, you know, I eat uh, very clean. But if I were to be able to eat anything, um, we call it a pronta. So it's... Um, 
like a roti, like uh, like like a pancake, and they and they fill it with potatoes, or you can fill it with lean meat. So it's um, you can have kima pronta or you can have alu pronta. They call it. Right, you just made my mouth water. Um, okay. <laughs> your favorite place to eat on the road? I very rarely eat out, uh, like wrestling wise, or like today. Like uh, a- a- anytime. Well, I remember a good story. It was uh, The Rock doing Johnson. He taught me how to, he said, let me teach you how to eat clean on the road. So uh, Waffle House, I remember he's a big fan of Waffle House. He would teach me how to eat dry, uh, uh, just, uh, just he, would, he, he is the master. Uh, he taught me how to eat clean. So Waffle House and Denny's, uh, that wasn't my preference, but they knew how to eat clean and they taught me. Now, from a business perspective, I, I like a good steak. So I would say a, ste- a good steakhouse. Excellent, excellent. We get steak a lot on the show. Um, yeah. Now, this is an interesting one because I'm not sure if you're a drinker, but uh, do you have a favorite alcoholic beverage? And if not, just a favorite beverage in general. Yeah, so I've never drank in my life. I thought uh, so. I've, yeah, I've never smoked in my life. Um, so I would say a nice beverage. What would be my beverage of drink? Jagger, what's my beverage of drink? Uh, upside down. <laughs> ah. Yes. So he just reminded me. It's, uh, <laughs> it's Starbucks. It's an upside down latte with caramel drizzle. And it's tall. I would have a small. In the morning. In the morning. Okay. So in the afternoon, he says, I like, uh, and it's right. He's right. Starbucks again. A tall, which is a small, cafe mocha with no whip and less sweet, half sweet. How specific. Yeah, I am very, very detail-oriented. Fantastic. Uh, Tiger, the second last one for Five Second Frenzy is a bit of a naughty one, but it could be changed from that because we've had different answers for it, but your favorite female body part. I have two. Okay. Uh, smile and eyes. We get eyes so much. We get eyes all the time. Yeah. Smile. A smile is uh, my wife. When I met her, it, she's a Sikh uh, ethnicity like me, but born and raised in Singapore. So her eyes, uh, I fell in love with her eyes and unbelievable smile. And she has... Uh, an accent, a little accent, which I always loved. And I was always saying, I got to marry someone that has, you know, I was into English accents at the time, but her accent's even better than English accent. <laughs> right. Very cool. I'll say this. I think I'm an eyes guy as well. Uh, okay. Because when I'd first met my girlfriend, we've been together nearly nine years now. Uh, good. She, she had a Facebook picture uh, after I'd met her, I'd added her on Facebook and she had, uh, her picture was, she was, uh, had one of those fans, like the Japanese fan. Yes. Yes. And all you could see above the fan were these cheeky wow. eyes. And wow. when I, when I looked at those eyes in that picture, I'm like, oh my Lord. And That's nine it. years later, here we go. <laughs> hey, you're catching up to me. I've been married. Uh, I had my silver anniversary this year, 25 years. Oh, congratulations, sir. Thank you. And uh, look, there's one more question, and I think maybe you won't be able to answer this one either, judging from how much of a gentleman you are, but your favorite curse word? Uh, 
it's not necessarily my favorite, but when I'm a little bit relaxed and um, the passion comes out of me. So they call it, because uh, I don't drink, but they said Tiger goes into a drunken tiredness stage. <laughs> so uh, the, the F-bomb, I, I, I frequently use, I drop the F-bomb. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the yeah. end of Five Second Frenzy. Tiger Ali Singh, I want to thank you so much in your busy time of the year doing what you do, which is so freaking important to spend several, well, several hours with me now to talk to me about your wrestling career and your life and everything. It means so much to me that you would, that you would do this for me. Um, I, I, and I want to tell you a personal story of me as a fan of yours when I was young, you know, I always looked forward to the tiger Ali scene segment. And ah. I was, you know, 12, 13 years old at the time. And I remember one time, I was hanging out with my friends about 12, 13 years old at the time. We're having a barbecue. One of the sausages that we're eating had fallen on the floor. <laughs> so I said to my friend, I will give you five Australian dollars if you eat that sausage. In my best, <laughs> terrible Tiger Ali Singh impression. And he ate the sausage. So he ate it. And you paid him. And I paid him. And, you know, and that, that means, you know, I want to say all the way in the most isolated city of Perth, Western Australia, someone at the age of 12 years old did an impression of you. And it's because they appreciated what you did on television. Thank you so, so very much. And uh, I got to leave you with this, that uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure you must be aware of my dad's wrestling history in Australia and New Zealand and Auckland. Um, so he has a huge affinity for, for, for the down under. He has unbelievable memories of the late, great Mario Milano. Oh, right, yes. Uh, he was a wonderful, wonderful dear friend with him. So when I told him uh, I was coming and he said, please give all my fans down there his deepest respect and admiration because he has nothing but the utmost fond memories during his early years, I think it was the early 70s there. Uh, he just absolutely had an unbelievable time, unbelievable experience. And uh, so I just wanted to convey that as well. I appreciate that. And uh, when you speak to him next, please let him know that I said hello. And uh, I've seen a couple of things on YouTube of his and uh, definitely a fan, kind of scared of him as well. <laughs> Well, you're not the you're not the only one that's uh, scared of them. There's quite a few. <laughs> Excellent, Tiger Ali Singh. Once again, want to thank you for your time, and you should be extremely proud of everything that you accomplished, all those ratings you. that you drew, everything that you've done for so many people. I appreciate you, and again, thank you for your time. Thank you, brother. Really appreciate it, and to all your listeners, uh, very merry Christmas, and wishing everyone happy holidays. Thank you, Tiger. And thank you, everyone out there for watching the WCWA Network podcast. I'm your host with the most on the West Coast, California Free, with my new best friend in the whole wide world, Tiger Ali Singh. And we will see you next time. Thank you. See you next time.